0: Teachers will meet them there. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It has been a while since we've been in our verse-by-verse study. We've uh, had some weather cancellations and some special speakers, and so it's fun to be back together again. If this is your first time, you've not been with us, we will give you some... Some review that you can be right with us. We're going to just teach verse by verse, exegetically, out of the New Testament. So whenever you do that and you study the word that way, it's always a blessing no matter where you are. And so I trust it will be that way for you. Last time we were able to dig into this section of 2 Corinthians as we come really to the end. And we've titled this Marks of Ministry, Paul's Example. And we've looked at a few of the examples of ministry that we are to follow. And we're going to review those just briefly Look at verse 12, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. It's always our habit to dig in and look down and look at your, your uh, copy so you can s- be certain of what we're teaching and how it connects with the rest of uh, that passage. Verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. And we took quite a bit of time, and we talked about signs, wonders, and miracles. We talked about their place and their function in the first century, so we won't talk about that again. But as we look at the examples from the Apostle Paul and we think about the heart of of Paul, we look at the phrase, with all perseverance. As we have seen, Paul uses the word true apostle over and against false apostles who had infiltrated the church. And so he talks about them and he says, false teachers really are concerned about fame, about prestige, about importance, which is all driven by pride. But with regard to the work of the church, Paul's concern was, even in the midst of the Lord working through him, it was humble faithfulness and dedication. And that Greek word perseverance means to bear up under any circumstance. It, it has to do with remaining faithful in difficulty. So no matter where the difficulty comes, no wha- no matter its source or what kind it is, that was our first mark in this section, serving really as an example from Paul for those who are in ministry, and that's bearing up and remaining faithful in the service of ministry. And as I understand that none of us has... Had to endure the things Paul has had to endure. The examples become much more important for us as we understand his own attitude here. Look at verse 13, if you would. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? In other words, you received all the power, you received all the signs, the wonders, the miracles. You were there, you witnessed all of that, you received the truth. I came and I didn't preach myself, I didn't preach the wisdom of men. I preached the true gospel to you. The only thing you didn't have to do was support this ministry. Paul had determined, as uh, from the start of the ministry with the Corinthians, that uh, he was not going to burden them with paying his support and the support of those who traveled with him. And in that passage, we saw really our next mark of ministry that is Paul's example for us, and that's selflessness. There had been grumblings. Paul had to talk about this uh, issue of financial support many times with the church, but there'd been grumblings all along in the church about taking care of Paul's needs. And then the false teachers came along and they compounded that problem. And Paul wasn't afraid to take support. He certainly did from other churches. But he just knew it would cause a stumbling block for some in this church. And we saw also, as we looked at that passage, that it's likely that in this case, he also wanted to avoid the stigma that was attached to false teachers who were all in it for the money. And even though he was clear that this was his policy towards them, he plays the sarcasm card and he tries to get their attention and he says, forgive me this wrong. Obviously, what he had committed to do with them was no wrong. Now look at verse 14. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you. Uh, This is his third visit. We've looked at all those previously. And I will not be a burden to you. In other words, my policy for Corinth hasn't changed. I'm not going to take any support from you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So he says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. And that's just so beautiful. And as we marked that last time, really at the end of our study, it's just a wonderful example from Paul. And our next mark of ministry, that is Paul's example to us, and that's devotion. He was devoted to the church. He's not out for what they could give him. He wasn't looking for something that they had or have. He just wanted them. He just wanted them for the kingdom. He wanted them for God. He wanted them for uh, obedience in their lives. He was interested in their righteousness and their holiness. He wanted their lives for the glory of God. That was what his intent was. He's not seeking what they have, what they can do for him. He's devoted to them. And again, this is probably spoken on on behalf of what is probably in stark contrast to the false teachers who are always seeking what the church has and bilking them out of as much as possible, and that hasn't changed all that much today. We saw the analogy then, as Paul says this, he uses an analogy to help them understand this attitude towards them. Look at the last part of verse 14. He says, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He is devoted to them as a parent should be to their child. And, And the word to save up is from a present active infinitive, it just means to provide over time and so with the infinitive there's no limit in person or number so the idea is very uh, specific here Uh, present active is the tense and voice of reality and so he says the relationship continues I've provided that support that devotion I'm going to continue to do that there's much more Paul knows that he has to give but not so that the parent can get anything but to provide something And so he uses that. And it's just a simple universal axiom, parents take care of their children. And they should do that as a joyous privilege. That's what Paul wants to get across here. It should never be construed as reluctant or manipulative in any way. Whatever a parent can do, they should do continually with joy and with devotion because that's how the Lord deals with you. And much of child rearing is based in this, if you are his. And that's the example of Paul's affection for the church. So it really can't be misconstrued. And like the Corinthian church, which had been deceived by false teachers and had not experienced that kind of devotion from them, but instead what they could get out of them and how much they could bilk them for, some children grow up in households where they don't get to experience this very simple relationship. And so for both the church and the individual, it's hard to adjust to the right kind of relationship. And so Paul edifies them then with this remark. And he continues in the illustration of a parent, and he makes it clear, as all good parents do, unless they want to frustrate their children, uh, because Scripture tells us not to frustrate our children, and one of the many ways you can do that, beloved, um, is to make them feel like they're a constant intrusion or a constant problem, and make them feel like they're not worth anything, and certainly not worth your time, and we've covered that certainly all the way through when we looked at Ephesians and God's plan for the family, and so you can understand that, but Paul makes it clear that the church won't have this experience with him, because the true parent-child relationship is experienced through him. And then he says in verse 15, he says this, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And that most gladly, it's just, it's just I'm thrilled to do it. It's, it's what I desire to do, be my great joy. And he gave us another example of ministry, and that's number four. Paul joyfully poured himself out for the ministry, and so should then every minister. It's his joy to, as a parent, it's, as a parent, it's supposed to be a joy to raise our children. It certainly is Paul's joy to pour himself out for the ministry. And the word spend and be expended, are verbs that deal with the future. Spend is what you bring with intent to a future relationship. And so as it relates to church, it certainly has your preparation, your desire, and your investment so that you're ready to be poured out for them. And then when you get to the word be expended, that's what the future may take out of you. And just like with children, you come there to, to, uh, to invest in them. And then, of course, it's going to extract a toll as well. And you glad, you're, you're gratefully and most gladly ready to do that one is future active one is future passive future active is spend be expended is future passive no matter what the cost there aren't any reserves that's the issue paul says i'm ready to be expended dads don't get to the point where they say okay that's too much effort i'm done and moms don't say okay this is all i want to do after that you're too much trouble a child should never have to deal with that kind of understanding from their parents and receive that from their parents That should never be the case, and Paul uses this as an example, and even even non-believers outside the church can understand this, I think, to some extent, but certainly believers can who have the Lord's uh, instruction on how to raise children. I'm going to hold nothing in reserve, and then he says this, for your souls, Uh, the innermost spiritual need to uh, disciple them, to prepare them for the kingdom, to correct them, to to help them walk in obedience. He, he will bring all he can and give all he can and help them live lives of righteousness and live lives of holiness, and he'll be expended for all of that. Now look at the end of verse 15. And then we saw the sad statement then at the end, if I love you more, am I to be love less? Paul, Paul says, uh, is this how it's always going to be? If, if there are no reserves, as he joyfully pours himself out for them, will they keep responding in the wrong way? And, and it's a legitimate question about the fundamental nature of that relationship and, and um, how people, some people still respond today, ungodly people. It's, it's cert- we have experience here. It's sometimes how one spouse responds to the other and how the other uh, has a lack of response. One spouse pours themselves in, and it just seems like there's less and less. It has to do with children and parents. Many times uh, parents can pour themselves in. It just seems like the child loves them less or vice versa. The child for itself in, and it's always something that comes up. See, that's not how it's supposed to be. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 16, however it is, be that as it may, however they react to him, it won't stop him from doing the work of a faithful minister and being an example. And with children... Uh, you, t- you teach them how to respect and obey by discipline and instruction. And if you want them to understand, you use corporal punishment, which scripture says drives foolishness from the heart. And you do that in love and, and, uh, and continue to love them, which is the verb that does something. And you do that all in that environment. That's precisely the environment that Paul is bringing here to the table. Even when he has to say hard things, it is because he loves them. And so with the church, he just says, be that as it may, it's still the same, and that's really amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you think about that, uh, it connects well with Paul's first example of perseverance. It doesn't, you know, you don't get that example much in a marriage. If, if there's too much one-sidedness in a marriage, most of the time people just give up. Like, I don't need this, I'm out. Right? And, and children rebel or or, or adults just kick kids out, whatever. We don't get, we don't get that stick to it. But here, Paul says, even in a church relationship where there's no marriage or anything, Paul says, however it is, I'm still going to stick it out. And that's amazing to me, that he's going to stay here. However they may react to him or receive him when he comes, no matter how they may lack appreciation for what he's done for them, no matter that they may not realize his love for them, be that as it may, he says, I did not burden you myself. Nothing's changed. However it is, and you can see how easily it would have been for Paul to say, listen, you don't appreciate the fact I've operated here with you with no support. You don't appreciate the fact that I poured my love into you and you've just responded in in disrespect and rebellion. He could have easily said, okay, I'll take a big, large offering and I'll get on my way, right? Because they didn't appreciate what he'd done, but he just said, nothing's going to change. I'm not going to be a burden. I'm not going to drag you through all the things that you've done. Whatever your attitude continues to be, mine, Paul says, won't change Paul says, even if your love grows less, mine's not going to grow less. He wouldn't ask anything from them. He was going to come for another visit, and he was doing it for the eternal benefit. And that was our fifth mark Paul gave as an example of ministry with what real ministry actually looks like. It's humble, faithfulness, and unassuming consistency no matter what. Those Those are high bars to jump over, aren't they? And then to get their attention, he throws in a little more sarcasm. Look at the last part of verse 16. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. And, and this is, is Paul's nature to throw this in. He's trying to dislodge their, their, uh, their bin and bondage. He's trying to dislodge them, break them free from this fog of self-deception. He does this often. There's a great example of that where the Bible helps to explain this. Hold your finger right here. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 4. Will you do that? 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7 is where we're going to pick up. I won't have it on the screen behind me. I'd like you to look there in your copy of God's Word because I think it'll be, um, it'll be instructive for you. So he's talking to the church, and you can see much of the same types of, uh, of uh, topics. But in verse 7, he's speaking to the church, particularly those who are gossiping, for those, those who are causing discord, those who are uh, imagining themselves as apostles but aren't. He says, For who regards you as superior... And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So it's pretty straightforward from Paul, pretty, pretty hard words. And historically, a lot of the contention and difficulty found in the church comes from church people with an over-evaluation of ability and self-confidence that's run amok, typically. Uh, it's boards and those who sit on them and whatever, and they just had this idea that they have this attitude of superiority instead of humility. And so Paul says, who regards you as superior? And what's the answer? Only you. You're the only one. And humility is the fruit of the Spirit we're looking for, Paul says. There's no place for boasting. And then he goes on with the sarcasm here, like in our passage, to help them be free of their self-deceit. Look at verse 8, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. In other words, Paul says, you've arrived, haven't you? You don't need anything from anybody, but especially from those that lead the church. And they're probably saying, oh, yeah, you know that. That's precisely right. And then Paul clarifies. And indeed, he says, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. There's the reality check. You haven't arrived in any of those places. I wish you had so that I would be blessed by that position. But he says, you haven't. I wish it were true, but you're actually just proud, arrogant, and self-deceived. And then look how he describes himself. Look at verse 9. He says, for I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all. So here we are, you know, picked by Jesus, uh, called as eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So speaking of the first century apostles, the signs of true apostles were done among you. They verified the message. They verified the messenger. Um, The Lord has breathed through us to write his words to you so that you can know him through the gospel about him and how to live and how the church is supposed to operate. And what are we? I mean, you think you're really something. He says, you don't need anything, especially from us. But what are we really? Men, he says, condemned to death. See where we are? Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He goes, that's our reality. He goes, I know you think you've arrived, but our reality is to the visible world and the unseen world, we're as nothing. We're men condemned to death. We're nothing but a spectacle. And that's the Greek now where we get our word theater. Theatron. We're no more important then characters in a play, that's, that's basically how people look at us. It's the whole, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, take this medication to fix your elbow. You know, you look at that and you're thinking, no, there's no authority there. We're not going to pay attention. That's how Paul says, typically, uh, those who lead the church are looked at. And then he really does this compare-contrast sarcasm thing to drive the point home and help them be delivered, market from the snare of the devil we see him tell Timothy about in, in 2 Timothy 2.26. Do you remember, though, when Paul told Timothy, he said, listen, part of what you're going to have to do besides preach the word and everything else is you're going to you're gonna have to correct those who are in opposition to you. And if you do that, perhaps God will grant them repentance from the snare that they've been ensnared in by the devil to do his will. So this is people, these are people in the church that have been snared by their own self-deception and snared by their own superiority and snared by any other kinds of things. And he says, Timothy, you're probably going to have to deal with them in correction to help them be released from this deception that they've been trapped by. And so this is precisely why he uses sometimes sarcasm to dislodge them from that place, to make them see how ridiculous what they're saying is. And so... He uses sarcasm just like he does in our passage. Look at verse 10. He says this, we are fools for Christ's sake. In other words, we have no idea what we're doing for Christ. That's how, that's how you look at us. We're fools for Christ's sake. We don't know how to do ministry, but you are prudent in Christ. And this is precisely how the dynamic always goes, see. Um, the l- elder doesn't know anything, but everybody who's in the church knows. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished. We're without honor, see. Paul just uses sarcasm and overemphasis and just says, listen, this is how it kind of pans out. And to prove that, our experience is much different than yours. Look at verse 11. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. Verse 12. And we toil. In other words, we work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. That's what that word toil means. Working with our own hands, when we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. Verse 13, when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. And we saw a few weeks ago that these are things that are marks of a true apostle. And some are certainly true still, I think, in the experience of ministers all around the world. And this is how Paul condenses his experience. He says, we've become, mark it, as the scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. So Paul's trying to, he's dislodging them from this deception, this self-deception. He says, you think you're kings and you think you reign and you think you've arrived and you're wise and you're the prudent and us, we're just scum and dregs. And as we move back to our current passage, right before we leave this part, look at verse 14. Paul affirms why he's saying these things. He goes, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. It's like, listen, I'm not writing a sarcasm. I'm not pointing these things out, the stark distinction between your experience and our experience and your reality and the reality of where, you're, where you are to shame you. I want you to see that you've been taken captive by these thoughts. See? He wants somebody to see some reason, to see their way out of self-deception. And that's exactly what he's doing in 2 Corinthians twelve sixteen. Look there. He says this, nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. And the sarcasm here is this, as you think about Paul's Paul's, uh, context here. You've been told by false teachers, I'm a charlatan. I'm not the real deal. Of course, the real charlatans are the ones who are propagating these lies, but he can't say that at this point. He just says, listen, you've been told I'm a charlatan. But here's the irony, Marcus. Who does something crafty? And that word crafty is the word that's translated as someone who does no real work. An unscrupulous, deceptive person up to every trick. Who does craftiness, and that's probably what the false teacher said about Paul, yeah, he's a real sneaky guy. Who takes all the time to deceive, which is the word for a fishing lure, and mark this, doesn't get any benefit. Who goes to all that trouble to deceive the church, like you said I did, and somehow not end up with a benefit? And instead of ending up with a benefit, just gets a lot of headache. That's the kind of things the false apostles are saying. Paul's crafty, he's deceitful, Paul's like, think through this. I came to you during a missionary journey and with much opposition to me and in danger of my life to the point, and we looked at this early in 1 Corinthians, where Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, don't worry, Paul. I have many people in this city and you will not be harmed. Paul was worried. And I planted this church, think about it, he says, and I stayed with you for over 18 months at my own expense. And after I left, I continued to think about you, and I wrote you four times, even while I was ministering in other places. You dominated my thoughts, and I visited you another time, and you were so out of control and so disrespectful and so rude, I left completely depressed and had no heart in me to do any other ministry for a while. And we looked at all that, didn't we? I send other ministers to you to try to help you understand your error, and I worried about them the whole time, and you the whole time. Oh boy, I really fooled you guys, right? I was really crafty with lots of ulterior motive, and what I get out of all that effort? Nothing. The whole narrative is nonsensical. He's never taken anything from the church, see? But this is what they believe. How do they believe that? That's because false teachers get in, false people get in, gossip gets going, and things are believed that aren't true, and they seem to be automatically the thing that has to be overcome. And they had to have known this because he's never taken anything from them. Now, look at the next two verses, verse 17 and 18. And, and these are just amazing. And, and um, Paul says, I didn't take advantage of you. That's obvious. Not only did I not take advantage of you, I didn't do it by proxy either. Look at verse 17. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I've sent to you. Have I? And what's the answer? No. Verse 18, I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? And the answer is no. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? And the answer is yes. And we'll look at this verse at length next time. But in general, this is our next mark of a faithful minister, number six. They are truthful, forthright, and sincere. They all are saying the same thing and they're truthful about it, and they're forthright. You can just sum it up by observing the integrity of their lives. Paul says, I obviously didn't take advantage of you, and neither did anyone I sent. We were of one mind. And, and beloved, you know, we live in a day where we really try to break everything down. And what I mean by that is as many, not all, but many, way too many books on pastoring and church growth and missions and church planning basically say if you put all these parts and steps in place, you too can be successful in the ministry. That's basically what they say. And you, if you're in ministry, you're going to read many books like this. You too can have a big, thriving church if you just follow these methods and you just understand the demographics of the community around you and you talk about the things people want to hear and avoid the things that make people uncomfortable. You will have an effective ministry. See, Organize people this way, and it's going to be successful. That's, that's what you read in a, lot, in a lot. Many too many, way too many uh, ministry books, and, and I, and I want to clear something up. I'm not saying that there isn't any place for organization and certain types of methodology. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, particularly modeling what we see in the New Testament. But if we understand anything about the New Testament, particularly as we see the example set for us from our current study in the ministry model of the Apostle Paul, then we would have to understand that the most important ingredient for ministry success and mark this, as it's regarded as such by God, would be character and integrity of the heart of the one who's doing the ministry. And that's the one big thing that gets skipped over in just about every ministry book. Really, if you just put all that together, you'll, just re- you'll be doing a ministry the Lord just thinks is fantastic. Really? Because we've seen examples of this all throughout our study, both Old Testament and New. God isn't looking for great speakers, engaging leaders, and guys with good charisma. He's looking for people whose hearts are his. And, beloved, I would challenge you, anywhere in the Old or New Testament, pull out someone who had all these things going for him, lots of charisma, good-looking, great speaker, engaging leader, that God said, okay, you're perfect for the spot I've got picked out for you. Come on. There isn't anybody. And, beloved, and and I was talking about this Uh, last week uh, with one of staff there are so many churches filled with men and now women who chose it as a vocation they plugged themselves in they picked they decided they were going to pastor they're going to follow all the rules and it would be perfect and listen God says the same thing about them as he said about them in the Old Testament they I didn't call them and they don't speak for me but we have those examples all over the place see 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 show us, and we're going to look at those uh, letters next after the study. But 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, show us the requirements of someone who desires to serve as an elder. Okay? And I I think we understand that. We've looked at it uh, briefly enough, but enough that you understand that there are some requirements. If somebody desires the office of elder, it says, he desires a good thing. And then it gives a list of things that have to be true, present, active, in the life of the individual, the man who desires the office of elder. And that shouldn't surprise us. Um, if, if the Lord is calling someone to elder, then these things have to be true, and these things are kind of listed off. And so the Lord has the right to say these things have to be true. And some of these things then, in the life that have to be true, become not true in the process of leading the church, then that person has to step down. So that just makes it very clear. But the Corinthian letters, mark this, show us how that person will minister in the church. Okay, the requirements are in 1 Corinthians 3 and Titus 1. But how they're going to minister is given to us by example of the Apostle Paul and others. And Paul wasn't a perfect man. And he had his struggles, and he had his pride, and all of that. And we understand that, don't we? We understand he had pride, and the Lord had to bring a difficulty on his life that he wouldn't take away to keep Paul's pride in check. And the Lord helped him with all of that. But here's where most of the books get it wrong. They're consumed with methodology and organization. And God is concerned, if we look at the examples of Paul, with men who walk with him. That's what he's concerned about. Paul was a man whose heart was given toward God. He was a man who was consumed with all the right things and driven by all the right passions and motivated by all the right desires. It's just so amazing to me. There was so much opposition to him in the church and so much nitpicking about his life when his life was in line. And that just shows you how it always is, okay? He was a man who kept a short sin list. He was a man who renounced the hidden shameful things, constantly making sure it wasn't anything in his life that, if it came exposed, would expose everything and look, make him look like a charlatan and betray the very gospel that he wanted to preach to others. Here's a man who didn't want to re- people to remember him and what he could do, but remember what the power of God, clay vessel. It's the power of God. Whatever comes out is the power of God. And his impact is immeasurable and really only able to be understood in eternity, isn't it? We, don't, we can't even fathom the impact. The Bible focuses very little on technique. and focuses a whole lot, though, on character and integrity and proper responses. And if we come away with anything from verses 17 and 18 and Paul's life in general, We understand that it's all about integrity and doing ministry as a market, an outflow of walking with God, being in his word and promoting what he says. And no matter what position, staff or leadership, elder, deacon, whatever it is, listen, beloved, I've said this all the time to our staff. There is nothing you have to give up here if you are not walking with the Lord, nothing. Oh, you can go through the process and nobody may be able to tell that you aren't walking with the Lord. They might not be able to tell that you didn't read your Bible at all this week, but you're not going to do anything that's going to make any difference in eternity unless you are that guy. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to be walking with the Lord. Promoting what He says, both in your private life and your family. It it can't be duplicitous. Nobody may know up here but the lord knows and you're not going to have any power see it's not about image it's not about having your name known or somebody recognizing you and and pointing you out as some certain thing but it's about desiring to know god deeply and genuinely it's the Ephesians 5:10 that we talk about in the be the church class Trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. And if you're a minister and you're trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord, as you learn that, you'll be able to communicate that to someone else legitimately and wholesomely and faithfully, and they'll also grow. But if you're not doing it, don't think that you're going to be able to do it up here. But churches are filled with people who are trying to do that very thing. It's not about having, and this is so important, and we see this often in the It's not about ha- having aspirations about doing great, go out and do great things for God, right, that we hear all the time. It's about having righteous and pure and holy aspirations and longings and motives, and it's all about the inside. It's about our hearts, and it's about our attitudes, and it's about our motives. And that's what guys training to be pastors and those who are training for ministry and missions need to hear. There, there is technique, certainly, involved, uh, we think about teaching and exegetical, expository messages and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture. You know, there's structure there that's important. It, in order to be able to communicate the Word of God clearly, you're going to have to do that. And, and I've said this over and over again, you know, if you have gone to a church and somebody gets up and they talk for 15 minutes and they haven't opened up the Word of God and said, you know, please read in this passage... They need to sit down and you need somebody else to get up there who understands God wrote a book and he has something to say and it's the only thing that's going to make any difference in the people who are listening. See, so when, when guys come through this ministry, that's the thing I stress most of all. Get into the passage right away. Make sure you begin to, to exegete the passage. Let the passage go to work in the hearts of the people. Bring your illustrations in. That's fine. I mean, this is all important and you certainly have different gift sets than I do. But make sure the passage is the main thing. Because that's what's going to make a difference in their heart. And if you haven't been in it before, don't expect you to be able to communicate anything that's any good to them. So, very important. And, and books miss all of this. And you, I mean, you read this, and of course, I've got to see these books a lot because men come through here and they're training for ministry. And it's just, you know, it's all about methodology. As if that's the only thing that's the key to being, to being uh, uh, effective for the Lord. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with that. See? But technique's important, certainly structure is important. When we think about the models we see in the Word of God, multiple elders lead churches, you know, that kind of thing is all over, and we understand that has to, that's the way it has to be. But, but in the end, mark this, a man will be no greater in the eyes of God than his own spiritual character will allow. That's really what it comes down to. He's, gonna, he's not going to be any greater than how he manages his family and his children you should be able to look at that and realize that's an outflow of his character. How does he manage his family and his children? He'll be no greater than how he actively reigns in his life. What he is in his heart is what he is, see? And that's what God can use. And, beloved, he may use it However, he sees fit apart from our aspirations and our expectations. And if we understand anything at all about the human founders of the New Testament church, we have to understand that. Men who are marvelous speakers, marvelous writers, and yet were persecuted the entire time they they began to found the church. That shouldn't surprise us at all. They are, because God can use that kind of person, a person whose heart is fully his, A person who reigns his life in and has aspirations to honor the Lord, whatever it is, and goes wherever the Lord wants him to go, and does it uh, with apparently maybe no fruit that he can see, but doing the things like God has aligned him to do them. But some of those in the Corinthian church didn't understand those principles, and they were enamored by flashy, and they were enamored by charismatic, as many are still today. And they were snared by messengers of Satan, who deceive them into thinking. Now, look at verse 19. It's so funny. All this time, you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. The entire time Paul's been doing this work, that's their response. Oh, you're just defending yourself to us. And it reminds me, you know, I could tell you a bunch of really funny things that's happened in 30 years of ministry after a message. I mean, I've had somebody come up right after a message and say this to me. I don't get a single thing out of your teaching. (coughs) And I said, I'm, I am really sorry, but what I really wanted to say was, I just took verse by verse through a passage through the Bible. That says a lot more about you than it says anything about me. If you didn't get anything out of that, we just taught through a verse of the Bible. I, I've had somebody come up and say, you said the word so 14 times in your, in your message. That's the first thing they said when I got down off the And I said, I am really sorry. That was probably super distracting. But what I wanted to say is, that's it? That's what you got out of the entire message, I said the word so. And of course, then it makes me feel very self-conscious, and I want to go back to the recording and say, did I say the word so 14 times? Because it's certainly possible, as a speaker, you forget, and you get into a certain type of transition between one thought and another, and you may start repeating yourself. And everybody knows who's spoken any length of time. That's very easy to do, and transitions are hard to do. And so, I, you know, it's possible, And if you read um, Charles Spurgeon, arguably one of the best preachers ever who has lived, if you look at just content, and he's got a whole book of things people have had said to him. Can you imagine? And they are super funny. And he had really witty comebacks. You know, I don't feel like I should have a witty comeback, but he had really witty comebacks. And uh, because I always think maybe I did do that. You know, I think maybe I messed that up. But um, this is the same kind of thing. Here's Paul writing. uh, He wrote the church four times. This is the fourth, and he's been there twice, and after he gets through saying all this marvelous stuff, we've been studying, what, for the last two years, two two, uh, letters, all this time, he says, you've just been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. So in spite of everything he says, that's what they think. It's very similar to what I just said. They're thinking Paul's just saying all these things because he knows he's guilty and he just wants to justify himself it's 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 mind-boggling that people get that way but they do still in the modern church they they follow gossip and they follow little letters circulated around or whatever and and then they have this idea that this is what the pastor's doing and no matter what's being said that's what they think see so it's not unusual it just shows the depth of deception that goes on paul says you know all this time you thought i was I was explaining myself my personal integrity all this defense of my apostleship you thought that was all for you because you think of yourselves as a judge and jury and approve or disapprove my life and ministry. And that's really what happens in the church, doesn't it? You you thought, no doubt, from false teachers and those that sow discord and gossip that I've been making excuses for my character and my failures and trying to convince you that I didn't fail. Nope, that wasn't it at all. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I won't have you turn there. I'll put it on the screen. Remember when he told the church, he was already dealing with this early on, and he says, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. He just wants them to know he's not evaluating their examination very highly. It's a very small thing. Not important. inconsequential, Or by any human court. Any, anybody who decides to ring in on it. It's insignificant what you think of me. That's what he's saying. Or, or what any human court thinks of me. Now, just to qualify that, we're not, we're not talking about obvious infractions that violate basic scriptural principles. We're not talking about open sin. Okay. Open sin with an elder, other elders are supposed to come and correct them in private, and, uh, and all of that. So you understand. But what we're talking about here is preferences and priorities and approaches and speculation and personal opinion and, and all that delivery, those kinds of things that have to do with the oversight of the church. In fact, Paul says, I do not even examine myself for, verse 4, I am conscience conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, just because I don't think I've done anything wrong doesn't mean I haven't. So there's Paul's humility coming through. I understand that before the Lord, he may say, hey, you know, you, you should have corrected this. But the one who examines me this is what he says. Is the Lord, verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's pr- praise will come from, to him from God. So he just warns the church. He says, listen, don't keep on doing what you're doing. You are in a position where you don't know. But the Lord's going to come and he'll bring to light all the things hidden in darkness, yours and mine, and disclose the motives, yours and mine, of men's hearts. And then each man will receive praise that comes to him from God. Paul says, You don't get to sit in judgment on me. You don't have that right. That belongs to God. I'm not writing all of this so you can render the final verdict on my life and ministry. Now, look at the verse, rest of verse 19. Actually, he says, It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all this for your upbuilding, beloved. So in spite of what you thought I was doing and the first response you had after all of those messages, what I was really doing, and this is our next mark of a faithful teacher, what I was really doing is my single focus was to bring you to maturity. And that is our example. Your single focus in the ministry is to bring people to maturity. And that's just so hard sometimes. When you have to to battle against people, it's hard to stay on target when people are accusing you of things and circulating little letters like they did about Paul with the list of all their shortcomings. What's most attractive instead of just sticking with it and moving people towards maturity, what's most attractive is chase it all down and defend yourself to everybody. See, that's what Paul could have done. You know, chase it all down, find the individuals, make sure he gets in an argument with them, shows them who's boss, right? That's what's very attractive. Or the other thing that happens in in modern ministry now is I've had enough of this. I don't need this. Good luck. By shaking the dust off my feet, I'm out at the door which is why pastors stay an average of two years in churches. Because after two years, people are not, they're not afraid anymore to really be critical. At the first year or so, it's kind of like the honeymoon period. And after that, it's like, this guy's an idiot. I'm going to tell him he's an idiot. Basically, that's how it works. The pastors pastor just go, okay, I'm out. I'm not going to fight this. I was looking for a job when I came. I'll look for one later, see. That's the easiest thing, see. So what's, that's very amazing for me, when Paul hears this comment, and obviously this has been repeated to him numerous times, he just says, listen, in the sight of God, we've been speaking in Christ and all that to continue your upbuilding. I want to bring you to maturity. That's what he wants to do. What a, great, what a great bar to get over, right? No matter what the opposition, no matter what happens, whether or not your love's reciprocated, regardless of what gets said about you, I'm interested in maturity. I'm interested in bringing you to maturity. The main thing, the main thing. We're about out of time, so let me give you a, a few illustrations and we'll kind of wrap up. It's all for your. What was the word? Up, building. That's a great word. Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven. And he, that's the Lord, gave to, this, to the church, some as apostles. We've talked about that. Their time has come and passed. And some as prophets, and we understand that. That's uh, the, the majority of what prophets said was forth-telling, not foretelling. So we still see some of that today, and, and some of that goes on, not foretelling. And some as evangelists, we still have them today, and some as pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the chur- saints for the works of service to our word, the building up of the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ. That Paul says, everything that I've done up until now has not been to to defend myself to you. It's been for your upbuilding. My sole focus was your discipleship. And this is precisely what the Lord gives overseers of the church to the church for is the building up of the body of Christ. And then he uses the word beloved. All for your upbuilding, beloved. And that's just a word that lets us know how much he loves the church. It's a word I use with you because the Lord talks about the church as beloved. And so I just use that. It's, it, it means it's not without meaning to me. It means you're beloved by the Lord, and I want you to remember that. In Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, as he talks to Timothy again, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. So that's, that's, a heavy, that's a heavy charge, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot on all, what he's about to say has a lot resting on it. Um, I'm going to tell you something, and I'll tell you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who are always objectively present and who's going to judge the living and the dead. So he has it all written down. He knows all that's happening. And by his appearing, he's going to come and his kingdom, which will come in fullness. I'm going to tell you something. What is it? What's the next three words? In all that heavy uh, prelude and everything that rests with all that, what's the most important thing Timothy's supposed to do? It's obvious, isn't it? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When you feel like it, when you don't. When they're ready for it, when they're not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, great patience, and instruction. Preach it. Why? Because your main job is the Ephesians 4 11 and 12, the upbuilding of the church. Your main job, as I've modeled for you in the Corinthian church, I did everything that I did and said everything I said for your discipleship. It is the main thing. Job is to build the church. So Paul gives us the example of persevering. He gives us the example of selflessness, even to the point of denying his basic needs in order not to offend or be made to look like false teachers. Paul gives us the example of devotion to the church, like a parent is to give to their child in the most winsome and wholesome way. Paul gives the example of joyfully pouring himself out and being used up. He brings things to the table that he wants to spend, and he knows that there'll be Uh, expenses that come out of the ministry that will exhaust all his resources, and he's perfectly joyful to do that. And Paul gives us the example of humble faithfulness no matter what is said, no matter whether it's reciprocated. Paul gives us the example of truthfulness, forthrightness, and sincerity. You're all saying the same thing. You're all doing it the same way. Everybody is of one mind as a minister, and, and then you can observe that really by the integrity of the life of the individuals and looking at how they raise their families and honor their wives and all that kind of thing that is all part of that. And then number seven, his single focus is to bring people to maturity. And those are high bars, aren't they? But they're not, they're not out of reach. It's just you're going to have to ignore most of what's written about ministry and realize that the Lord looks at what's going on inside. He wants to know what the motivations are. He wants to know where where the uh, effort is being placed. And so that's our time in the Word today. I hope it's a benefit to you. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. We seek the Lord and his blessing on this reading and on this time in his Word. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of being together and being in your Word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you for the fact that we can study it together. I thank you that, uh, and my prayer is obviously that our church is, is doing this every day, and so it just becomes something we do corporately uh, that we do each day ourselves. And Lord, I pray we'll apply ourselves to what it says, what it means by what it says, and how does that, that apply and then begin to do that each day as a habit. That we know the word and read the, through the word each each year so we have a comprehensive knowledge of the word and we can begin to compare scripture with scripture and be encouraged in all of those things. This is what we will do, Father, if, if, uh, if you tarry. Our desire is to be a church like this. And so, Father, the, these uh, bars, though high, are not unreachable by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we do ministry that you approve of, these things will be the things that rise to the top. Obviously, those who ministered in the church had much difficulty. We shouldn't expect it to be any different now a difficulty for the most in the church from unbelievers certainly and from the culture around them and we would have the same types of things help us to be proven faithful shown to be faithful ministers for you and Father as we think about all that uh, help us as we think about our purpose and why we're left here on earth to love you with all our heart soul, mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself in a contentious world where everyone is at each other's throat it certainly is a breath of fresh air to be a neighbor like that and Lord as well knowing that we're never going to find satisfaction or healing or or anything that's going to fix anything from our government or anyone else, but that we go out and we take the gospel to every creature, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that you have shown us. And you said you'll be with us. And Lord, so we never have to pray, Lord, be with this missionary or be with this person if they're a believer. You've already said I'm with you always. Help us to be aware of that objective presence with us so that we do the things we should be doing. Simple prayers, Father, ones that we desire very much for you to fulfill in our life because they align with what your will is as we've seen clearly from your word. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.